This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. It's episode 494, Highlights Edition number 5 for 2023, with excerpts including Christopher Gorham, author of a book on FDR aide Anna Rosenberg, Greg Fissery, tracing the origin of the National Football League, Scott Shane, chronicling the life of Thomas Smallwood, an African-American who named the Underground Railroad, and interviews from the 2015 Fort Plain Museum Conference on the American Revolution in the Mohawk Valley. We begin with Christopher Gorham, author of a book on FDR aide Anna Rosenberg. She told President Truman, she told George Marshall, I have a lot of bullseyes on my chest. I'm Jewish, I'm an immigrant, I have an accent, I'm a civilian woman, I'm a former New Dealer, and yet they still chose her and they wanted her to be in that position. Hi, I'm Christopher C. Gorm, the author of The Confidant, the untold story of the woman who helped win World War II and shaped modern America. The Confidant, this remarkable woman, her name was Anna Rosenberg, and she was FDR's stylish secret weapon, both on the home front and in the in the battlefields of Europe. And that was just the first act. In 1950, she became the Assistant Secretary of Defense during the Korean War, and for 26 months uh, acted in that capacity. And this is her story. Christopher Gorham is a lawyer and a teacher, more importantly, a teacher of modern American history at Westward Academy, a public school outside of Boston. Uh, He lives in Watertown and uh, Chatham, uh, Massachusetts, and he's talking about Anna Rosenberg. Uh, She's born in another land. She's born in uh, Budapest. Uh, And when does she come to the United States? She arrived in the United States uh, two years after her father had come uh, to rebuild his life. So she arrived in uh, 1912, the classic way, on a ship from Europe you know, sailing under the Statue of Liberty, being processed at Ellis Island, and then starting her new life in New York City. And in New York City, she did um, work when she was in high school, right, about uh, settling a, a, a strike, and that became sort of her life's calling. She she was a negotiator. That's exactly right. She was in the New York public schools, and as a 17-year-old, she found herself in the pages of the New York Times for the first time, and, you know, she was going to be in that paper for the next seven decades regularly, but she mediated a student strike during World War I, and that was her calling. She was a mediator. She was somebody who could bring disparate factions together and find a mutual solution. And now, Greg Fissery, tracing the origin of the National Football League. And they recognized that they needed some standards. They needed some contracts. They didn't want college players coming in and out of games week by week. And they didn't want players switching teams week from week. They wanted some more structure. So they met in a car dealership in Canton, Ohio in 1920 and formed what became the National Football League. And that is why the Hall of Fame is in Canton, because the NFL was founded there, not because pro football was born there. Hi, I'm Greg Fisseri, author of Gridiron Legacy, Pro Football's Missing Origin Story. And this is a coffee table format book with a great story in it. So my great-grandfather, Bob Shiring, was the greatest center of the pre-NFL era. 
first in Pittsburgh, the birthplace of professional football, starting in 1892. And Big Bob, as they called him, became a pro football player first in 1901 with the Homestead Library and Athletic Club that was the world champions at that time by beating a team from Philadelphia. And pro football failed in Pittsburgh for after 1902 because it just wasn't making any money and they didn't think it would be successful. However, the Maslin Tigers in Ohio brought him and three of his teammates out there to help win the Ohio State Championship against the Canton Bulldogs and uh, Akron teams and others in Ohio. And pro football continued to flourish out west, as they say, uh, for a few more years until 1906 when an alleged gambling scandal that has been a cold case for over 100 years, the first era of pro football, and it was my job to add the photos that I inherited from my great-grandfather to the solving of the cold case, which I did to create a very unique and interesting book. That's Greg Fissery with his story of the origin of professional football in the United States. Moving on... We heard from Scott Shane, chronicling the life of Thomas Smallwood, an African-American who named the Underground Railroad. Just from talking to folks and having seen this scenario before, you realize that all the people enslaved by that person are going to be part of the estate and they could be sold off and scattered. Another possibility is that the slaveholder is uh, having a hard time financially and may even have threatened, as sometimes happened, to, as they said in those days, I'm going to put you in my pocket, meaning I'm going to summon the slave trader and sell you off for $500, $600, $700 and, you know, cash you in. I'm Scott Shane, and my book is called Flee North, A Forgotten Hero and the Fight for Freedom in Slavery's Borderland. It weaves the story of three characters in the 1840s. These are real people. It's a nonfiction book. They were involved in the Underground Railroad and the domestic slave trade in the mid-Atlantic around Washington, D.C., Baltimore, and the surrounding counties. The featured character is a virtually unknown black abolitionist named Thomas Smallwood, Mm -hmm. who not only helped hundreds of people escape slavery, but also wrote about it in a series of satirical letters that were published at the time about the people escaping, the people they were escaping from, that really is a sort of unique satirical masterpiece that I was fortunate enough to stumble upon. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Scott Shane is discussing his book, Flee North, A Forgotten Hero and the Fight for Freedom in Slavery's Borderland. Scott Shane was a longtime New York Times reporter and two-time Pulitzer Prize winner. Why did you focus on the the Mid-Atlantic states? Uh, For example, you live now in Maryland, in Baltimore, Maryland. Well, yeah, that's, uh, that's basically the answer right there. The, the origins of this book actually goes back about 25 years to my discovery after living in Baltimore for quite a few years that in the first half of the 19th century, the slave trade, slave traders, had thrived, uh, operated thriving businesses 
around Baltimore's Inner Harbor. And for those who've visited, the Inner Harbor is a lovely touristy kind of place uh, where people stroll and eat. And, you know, just the, the horror when I began to read about it of the so-called slave jails or slave pens operated by domestic slave traders at the time from about 1810 to the Civil War. You know, it was just very striking to me. And I wrote about it for the Baltimore Sun, where I was working at the time, and always wanted to return to it in part because so few Americans grasp the nature of the domestic slave trade and the scale of the domestic slave trade. Baltimore happened to be one of the big ports where people were forced onto ships or chained into so-called coffles, lines of people chained together and marched south or taken south by ship and sold into the cotton and sugar plantations of the Deep South. I lived there. This was sort of all around me, and it really um, caught my imagination. I, uh, I finally did return to it, you know, started looking for a story to tell. That's author Scott Shane. He's just out with his uh, new book about the Underground Railroad, and he's getting a lot of attention. New York Times did a, a big story about it not that long ago. Our last uh, series of interviews comes from 2015 as we continue to get ready to celebrate our 500th podcast on the Historian's Podcast. These interviews were recorded in 2015 at the first of the conferences on the American Revolution in the Mohawk Valley held by the Fort Plain Museum. Uh, since 2015, uh, this uh, annual conference with maybe some difficulties during the pandemic years has become an institution here in upstate New York history. So here I am interviewing people uh, in 2015. This is Bob Cutmore, and here it is, the big conference on the American Revolution and the Mohawk Valley taking place in Canajoharie and Fort Plain, and I've uh, had the opportunity to uh, corral one of the speakers, and his name is Jim Kirby, and uh, I really, uh, tell us a bit about yourself. Okay, be glad to. Actually, I'm up from Houston, Texas, where I'm a professor of history at the University of Houston, and I've been there for several years, taught at Rutgers University earlier in my career. And I've spent a lot of time studying the history of this area. And I co-authored a book called Forgotten Allies, The United Indians and the American Revolution. And I'm going to be talking about that uh, today, some of the aspects of that particular book and project, and my interest in the history of the Mohawk Valley, which is, from my point of view, absolutely fascinating. It is, and uh, the Oneidas not joining the, the British cause uh, you know, means, for one thing, or you, t you tell me, I mean, I just have this general sense, they basically stayed here. They have a casino here. That's right. They're still here. Uh, they had some rough times in the 19th and into the early 20th century. They lost a lot of their land. Uh, but, uh, yes, they were good and faithful and active allies of the American rebels during the Revolution. Uh, which meant they really split with the rest of the Confederacy, except some Tuscaroras were on the uh, American side, too. And that put them in a very unusual position of supporting what a majority of the Six Nations felt was really the wrong way to go. They felt the British would do more for them uh, during the Revolution and after the Revolution. As it turned out, 
It didn't work that way. It didn't work that way for either side because the British in 1783 in the Peace of Paris did nothing to protect the Indians, that is, let's say, the Mohawks, the Senecas, the Cayugas that supported them. And in the end, the Americans really didn't do very much uh, for the Oneidas and the Tuscarora. So it's not, it's not a real happy story at the end. In fact, the wounds are still evident today among the Six Nations, and uh, the Oneidas sometimes are treated as, well, you're the brothers that went the wrong direction because you really separated from the Confederacy. But all told, um, it's been a really amazing recovery for the Oneidas. They have a huge... Uh, uh, resort casino operation called Turning Stone, uh, very close to Rome, New York, um, and so there's a success story. There's a success story there today uh, that uh, has really brought them back, uh, and they are now major contributors to this area in terms of both the economy and cultural awareness and understanding of the role of Native Americans in American history. Around here, the, the kind of the icon from that era, one of them is Sir William Johnson, who, uh, you know, again, my sort of, what you call it, you know, because I'm, I'm from here, sort of like our favorite son interpretation is that he was key in keeping the Mohawks anyway on the British side, even though he died before the, the war, the Revolutionary War began. What do you think? Well, Sir William was an amazing individual, um, and he really came into this area as a cultural broker, uh, representing British values, and he worked very, very hard to maintain good relations with the uh, Indians, especially with the Mohawks, but he didn't have particularly good relations with the Oneidas, and that's one of the things that made a difference. Um, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit, why that, was, uh, that kind of a split was there uh, later this morning. But what I can tell you is that Sir William also had a very large family, uh, his son, Sir John Johnson, will organize the Royal Greens of the King's Regiment of New York. Um, his nephew, son-in-law, Guy Johnson, will become the Indian agent in this area to replace Sir William. Sir William died in 1774. Uh, and in the end, this family remained loyal to the crown, kept the Mohawks, I believe uh, it's fair to say, loyal to the crown. And also he had good relations with, with like, uh, the Senecas. And uh, those are reasons why those factors really do play a role in how these various nations will line themselves up with respect to the revolution. Jim Kirby. What's the name of your book again? Uh, the name of the book is Forgotten Allies, the United Indians and the American Revolution, co-authored with uh, a colleague of mine, Joseph Gladhar. And uh, it was just an adventure to write this book because the sources are very, very difficult to get at. Uh, there's a lot of oral history from the 19th century, a lot of treaty negotiations, all that sort of thing. It's a hard story to put together, but more importantly, it's a very important, significant story to put together. And I've really pleased I was part of that process. And I'm curious how you got involved with them. And you, if I understand correctly, you're not from here. It's just that you, you see it as an important story. Well, I actually am from northern Ohio. In a part of the country where a very well-known figure, Joseph Brandt, was born back in the 1740s. And I began to develop, even as a youngster in Ohio, when we did Ohio history, because there's a lot of Native American in that story, I began to develop this interest. And then I've been involved in other projects uh, uh, with a man by the name of Joseph Bloomfield, who came up in this area uh, as part of the 3rd New Jersey Regiment in 1776. In fact, it was his superior officer, uh, Elias Dayton, who selected the Fort Plains site in 1776. I was involved in uh, uh, publishing uh, Blumfield's memoir. 
I wrote a biography of Benedict Arnold, and he was all through this area during the campaigning in 1777 and helping to uh, liberate Fort Stanwix, then under pressure from the British coming down from Canada. So I've done a lot of work in the area. I love these stories, and I really think this is such a beautiful part of the country. I just love coming back here and being a part of it. That was Jim Kirby or Jim Kirby Martin. He apparently uses uh, both names in his scholarly work. Uh, Jim Kirby Martin, co-author with Joseph Glathar of Forgotten Allies, the United Indians and the American Revolution. Jim Kirby, a professor at the University of Houston, and he was up in the Mohawk Valley for the big uh, conference put on by the folks at the Fort Plain Museum, the American Revolution in the Mohawk Valley. They say it's their first annual conference. And on a Saturday in early May, the professors and authors and well over 100 people uh, gathered for the program uh, that was held on Saturday at the Arkell Museum, their big conference center in Kanajahari. The night before, there were events at the Fort Plain Museum. And then on Sunday, there were bus tours of uh, a number of historic sites in uh, western Montgomery County uh, that relate to the American Revolution, such as uh, Fort Plain and uh, the 1747 Nellis Tavern and uh, Fort Clock and so forth. I'm Bob Cudmore, and you are listening to The Historians, and the uh, segments today all were recorded at the American Revolution in the Mohawk Valley Conference. Uh, In just a moment, we're going to hear from Jack Kelly, author of Band of Giants, The Amateur Soldiers Who Won America's Independence. He's a journalist and novelist, lives in the Hudson Valley. Uh, Then uh, Kyle Jenks will talk with us for a bit. Uh, It was hard to miss Kyle at the conference. I think there was one uh, gentleman who maybe represented the British side in the revolution. He seemed to be wearing kilts. But Kyle Jenks uh, was uh, really easily noticed. He was in full Revolutionary War garb. And uh, we'll talk with Kyle uh, in a few minutes. Uh, Kyle is the producer of Drums Along the Mohawk Outdoor Drama, which will be presented in uh, Mohawk, the Mohawk that's up by uh, the village of uh, Herkimer at the uh, Gelston Estates. That'll take place in the summer. After we hear from Kyle Jenks, a friend of mine, uh, Jackie Murphy, among the many local people interested in history who attended the conference, Jackie, retired Montgomery County historian, a little truth in advertising here, uh, Jackie uh, does love history and does a lot of the research that I use in my columns in the Daily Gazette and also in my books. And then, lo and behold, who should I run into at the uh, conference but John Warren, who is the editor of the New York History blog, uh, which uh, I write for occasionally, and uh, people all over the state do. It's a blog of uh, great interest for uh, historians in New York. Then Don Haggist, who has uh, written a book called The Revolution's Last Men, The Soldiers Behind the Photographs. Uh, Don has uh, looked into this uh, what happened in the as the Civil War was about to start, maybe it had started already, a photographer went around and tried to photograph as many living Revolutionary War veterans as possible. Uh, one of them photographed, actually served at Fort Plain in uh, Montgomery County, New York. So Don Haggist is on. Uh, he's from Rhode Island, an author and historian. And then uh, we'll conclude uh, the podcast with Brian Mack, of the Fort Plain Museum, one of the organizers 
of the American Revolution in the Mohawk Valley Conference. This is Bob Cudmore, and we're in Canajahari, the beautiful uh, Arkell uh, Museum and uh, Canajahari Public Library, which is the scene of uh, one of the uh, gathering points for this uh, weekend conference on the uh, American Revolution and uh, the Mohawk Valley. We're talking with uh, author Jack Kelly. Uh, how you doing, Jack? Uh, I'm a gr- good, Bob. Uh, the conference is going very well, I think. Oh, I would say. I mean, there's over well over 100 people, maybe 150 people attending. Uh, the book that you're going to uh, talk about uh, is Band of Giants, the American Soldiers Who Won America's Independence. Uh, again, we're talking with Jack Kelly. Uh, it seems to me what you're, from what you were telling me, what you do is focus attention on American soldiers we haven't heard about, uh, you know, say lower rank than uh, George Washington. Yes, yeah, so that's exactly right. And it, really the origin of the idea for the book uh, came from uh, um, my childhood. I grew up in Wayne County, which is up near Rochester, a little farther up uh, uh, to the west of here. Uh, and all the time I was growing up, there was never any mention of Anthony Wayne. There was never an Anthony Wayne day. There was never, uh, we didn't have a statue of Anthony Wayne. And uh, so I began to think, you know, there's 14 Wayne counties across the country named for Mad Anthony Wayne. We never learned why Mad Anthony Wayne was mad. <laughs> and so I thought there's some, some of these lesser known but fascinating characters from the American Revolution, uh, it'd be worth looking into them. And I tried to put their story not as a, as a series of mini biographies, but in the context of a, a narrative of the war itself. So it was a, it was a challenge, but I think it, uh, the reaction to the book has been very uh, encouraging for me. Since he started you on the quest, can you tell us more about Matt Anthony Wayne? Well, uh, Matt Anthony Wayne was from Pennsylvania. He uh, was a uh, he was sometimes referred to as the Patton of the Revolution. He was very uh, a very um, aggressive commander, but careful. Um, he'd always loved war from uh, childhood, but he'd never been in the army. He was. Uh, the actual subtitle of my book is The Amateur Soldier. So uh, many of the American commanders had no background in the military, and they had to learn their trade as they went along, and he was one of them. Uh, he, he had actually one of the nicknames. There was a lot of nicknames that were applied later, uh, Granny Gates or Gentleman Johnny Burgoyne. But Matt Anthony Wayne was called Matt Anthony even during the war. Because? Uh, he was uh, because of his aggressiveness. Uh, not so much they didn't know. Nobody thought he was insane, but they just thought, you know, he's a he's a guy that you don't want to push him too far because he'll, um, you know, he'll attack. And he had some pretty spectacular battles that he was involved in, uh, particularly down in Virginia. He was fighting with uh, Lafayette in Virginia later in the war, um, and he was a he was a brilliant commander. And uh, thank you for pointing out. I, I mistook that in your subtitle, The Band of Giants, The Amateur Soldiers Who Won America's Independence. So these were guys that, well, I remember they, after the war, did they not uh, form this society called the, the Society of Cincinnatus yes. after the Roman um, general or dictator who, who, right after the war, went back to his farm? Yeah, and the, of course, George Washington was the uh, the prime example of that. Of the, they said you go back to your vine and your fig tree, and um, the um, idea was you were a citizen first and a soldier second, and you were not a professional uh, military man. That, of course, worked to, to the disadvantage of of the Continental Army. 
for much of the war because they had to learn their trade as they were going along, and they had to develop the the structure of an army. They had a you know officer class. They had a, a supply system. They had none of that when the war began. What about Montgomery, for whom our county was named? But was he one of these amateur soldiers? He was, or was he more a professional? Uh, Richard Montgomery was actually uh, the exception to that. One of the few exceptions. Uh, Horatio Gates was another one that had been in the British Army before the war. Uh, I have a particular affinity for Richard Montgomery because I live now uh, near Rhinebeck, which is where he was from. He'd come over from England, settled there. He he wanted to be a farmer. When the war broke out, he'd only been in America for two years at that point. He thought it was his duty to sign up. He was one of the most experienced officers to to volunteer. They immediately made him a brigadier general, and they sent him up to invade Canada. And unfortunately, he was killed in the first year of the war uh, trying to take storm the walls of Quebec City, which if he had succeeded, unfortunately he didn't, and if he had succeeded, it could have ended the war right there. But... Um, it was um, seven more years of struggle before they actually defeated the British. You've told us about uh, Wayne and uh, talked about Montgomery. Uh, I don't want to press my attention here, but just, could you just give us just one more story? Who's another? I mean, I, I was going to put it this way. I mean, who do you think is the most significant? Maybe you've mentioned them already uh, in, in this group of, uh, of, Amer- of amateur soldiers. Uh, I'd have to say that uh, the, the most surprising and the most uh, important uh, general in that category was Henry Knox. Uh, he had started out as, as a bookseller in Boston before the war, had no uh, direct military experience. He was interested in uh, artillery, and he, because he ran a bookstore, he could read his own books, which were, he studied up in artillery. He joined the uh, Continental Army early in the war. He almost immediately became one of Washington's key advisors and was throughout the war was was a key advisor to Washington ran the entire um, artillery uh, division of the Continental Army and when he started out he was only 25. Really? And you said Henry Knox. Henry Knox. Did, did, Knoxville, Tennessee and ah. yeah. Did he have to do somewhat with the uh, some of the battles around Boston or Yes, he he was uh, his he lived in Boston. He'd grown up in Boston, and he had his bookstore there. And when the British were were besieged in Boston in 1775, after the Lexington Concord, uh, he left with his wife, snuck out of the city, joined the, um, the 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 militia units that were there. And when Washington arrived, uh, he he saw this talent in Knox and made him a. a, a even despite his young age, he made him a, 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 a colonel in the, in the uh, artillery. And I'll press my luck one more time. Did he end up using the weaponry that they took from the old or from Fort Ticonderoga? Yeah, and it was Henry Knox who brought the the guns from Ticonderoga to Boston. He had to find a way to get them overland down there. So that was a, one of his big achievements. Was so. One of the sessions is starting. I thank you very much. And that was an interview for the first of the Fort Plain Museum conferences on the American Revolution in the Mohawk Valley. It's become a great uh, series. Congratulations to uh, Brian Mack and Norm Bolin and all the people who work on that annual event. The History Mystery will return next week. I want to thank the donors to the Historian's Podcast Fund Drive, but 
We could use more donors. Oh, yes, we could use more donors, uh, but we still have a long way to go. Please donate online by going to our website, bobcudmore.com. We have a blue highlighted button that will take you to our GoFundMe campaign, and you'll be able to uh, donate electronically on GoFundMe. If you'd rather contribute the old-fashioned way, write out a check to me, Bob Cudmore, and send to 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. That's 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. The Historian's Podcast is produced by Dave Green. I'm Bob Cudmore.